Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. Welcome back to this week's episode, guys, where I'm happy to sit down and chat with Dr. Tinda Sivak about all things stress response. Dr. Tinda Sivak is an assistant professor of health sciences at Merrimack College. She earned her PhD in kinesiology with concentration in exercise science from the Ohio State University. She has a master's in kinesiology from the University of Connecticut and her bachelor's in philosophy from the United States Military Academy, West Point. Tinder's areas of expertise include strength and condition, adaptations to resistance exercise training. She currently teaches advanced exercise physiology, advanced strength and conditioning, and strength and conditioning coaching in the exercise science and sports science graduate program at Merrimack College. She is a former active duty army officer, having earned her commission upon graduation of the US Military Academy at West Point. She served seven years within the US Army where she had two year-long combat tours to the Middle East and was assigned to the 101st Airborne Division. During her time at West Point, she was a four-year collegiate powerlifting athlete. Following her active service, she still currently serves in the United States Army Reserve. In this episode, Tinda talks about her transition from the military to academia, an overview of the mechanisms behind the stress response, the difference between global versus localized stress, the impact of fitness levels on the stress response, and strategies to help improve stress hardiness. Good morning, Tinda, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. And no problem. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. Sit down and chat with me. Obviously, as I originally reached out to you, Tinda, saw some of the stuff you had on YouTube with regards to some of the research you'd done around stress response. And I thought you'd be a great guest to come on, given your background. Um, for anyone who hasn't come across you and you know your work you've done, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of where your career started out and you know where you're currently at? So I would say my career has has taken a bit of a perhaps unconventional path. I started out uh, active duty military, uh, started out as a military officer, uh, served on active duty for a, close to seven years, and then decided to transition at that point and uh, decided to go back to school, pursue my master's uh, in exercise physiology. And then that eventually led to pursuing a PhD in exercise physiology as well. Uh, So since then, uh, I've been working as an assistant professor uh, now in my finishing up my fifth year at Merrimack College Uh, So I've been focusing primarily on teaching and research uh, in these in these past few years, Uh, but my my area of research interest is all things stress physiology. Uh, Obviously, I I have a strong interest in tactical human performance and being able to apply uh, some of the things from my military experience know how those things relate to physiology and vice versa Uh, so that's generally where i am uh now awesome awesome stuff and obviously you mentioned there you had a a seven-year career active duty within the military and now you've made the uh, transition over into academia what what uh what sparked that interest to make that move over to into academia and most notably as well within physiology as well of all things so i think I can say, you know, during my time in the military, uh, I had many different experiences, but uh, I was 
fortunate in in having the experience uh, that many other service members have, you know, uh, a few deployments, combat deployments overseas. So I had a firsthand exposure to stressful environments, high stress training, uh, sort of, you know, all kinds of situations where it really is uh, just a very, uh, you know, a great example of, of what stress looks like in the field, right? Mm -hmm. So that kind of was, you know, from the military side where the interest came from uh, in terms of, of the human body and how the human body works. You know, I've always had an interest in that uh, from the time I was young, uh, very interested in, in health and fitness and those kinds of things. And then it became, you know, how can I combine the experiences that I had as a military officer, uh, and how can I then uh, combine that with the interest in human performance and, and physiology? And so that's really where uh, where it led to exercise physiology as, as a career path uh, down the line. Um, like I said, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a linear path to get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but looking back on it now, I'm very thankful that I had those experiences because it has informed everything uh, about my approach to research and teaching as well, uh, and, and also the areas that I tend to focus on uh, when it comes to you know, applied physiology and, and uh, human performance in general. It is very much informed by uh, the practical relevance and then, you know, uh, the interest in stress specifically uh, has has a lot to do with that background. Okay, and obviously, you did your your PhD uh, PhD at Ohio State under Bill Kramer, was it? Yes, that's correct. How did that come about? Did did they advertise for that that post to come up, or did you just approach them and say, "Listen, this is my background. You know, I've got interest in physiology. I'd like to do it within stress response within tactical populations." No, uh, I would I would say working with with Dr. Kramer was was a bit of uh, serendipity, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I was fortunate enough to meet Dr. Kramer when I was a student at the University of Connecticut pursuing my master's, uh, and through meeting Dr. Kramer and uh, getting to know him and and starting to take part in some of the research and some of his coursework at the University of Connecticut, that then led to, to uh, beginning PhD studies uh, with him, uh, first at University of Connecticut and then finishing those studies at The Ohio State University. Cool, that's awesome, that's awesome. Now, obviously with regards to the topic of stress, it's, it's one of these big highlighted things within uh, you know, the general public now, and obviously, particularly within military populations, you know, with regards to the acute and chronic stress loads and stuff like that as well. For anyone who doesn't have a good deep grasp of the physiology around stress and that, Tinder, can you just give us like an overview of, you know, the mechanisms around the body's stress response? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to, to first, uh, you know, define stress uh, if we look at the classic definition. So looking at Hans Selye's original work, mm -hmm. uh, we can really define stress as an adaptation to a specific demand. Uh, and, and sometimes, many times, we, we frame stress as a negative thing. 
but it's not necessarily a negative thing. It can also be positive. Um, and stress comes from all sources, whether that be physical training, uh, whether that be psychological stress, military training stress, you know, not sleeping, uh, it's, it's everything. Uh, so anytime we're faced with that, the body uh, has to adapt to that given demand uh, and ultimately is trying to find a way uh, to, to maintain a homeostatic state, right? Homeostatic at rest, but then how can we adjust when we're, when we're under a, an added stressor to meet that demand and then ultimately, hopefully, return back to homeostasis? So there's different mechanisms involved and, and different parts of the body. Uh, when, we, when we hear the term stress or stress response from a physiological point of view, uh, many times it's framed as, as um, fight or flight, mm-hmm. adrenergic response. So really uh, what it boils down to is sympathetic activation or sympathetic arousal uh, of the adrenal gland, specifically the adrenal medulla. Uh, so it's nervous system activation, which is wonderful because it happens very, very quickly, uh, which is one of the reasons why if we're faced with any kind of uh, physical demand, crisis. Um, I always tell my students, you know, bears running after you when you went hiking, that's, that's when your sympathetic nervous system is really going to help you out, hopefully. Um, so sympathetic activation of the adrenal medulla will ultimately re- result in catecholamine release from the adrenal uh, medulla from storage vesicles. And when that catecholamine release happens, uh, you end up with, you know, norepinephrine and epinephrine primarily, also some dopamine released into circulation very quickly within one to two seconds. And then that acts to uh, do things, you know, for example, upregulate heart rate, uh, breathing rate, uh, mobilize energy sources from storage sites. All of those things are happening so that we can very, very quickly uh, rise to the occasion of whatever stress is happening at that time. And then the other piece of it, of course, is the HPA axis. So hypothalamic, hypothalamic pituitary axis. Uh, so connection from the brain signaling to the adrenal cortex for release of cortisol which is a slower process because cortisol has to be, um, you know, synthesized. It's it's not stored uh, the same way that catecholamines are, but cortisol also plays a critical role in the stress response. Uh, It also acts to mobilize energy stores when it's released uh, in circulation. and, And it's also part of that process. So if we were to, you know, sort of sum up uh, the stress response. It's both signaling via the HPA axis to ultimately, uh, you know, increase rates of cortisol synthesis and then subsequent release into circulation, but then also uh, nervous system sympathetic arousal and activation of the adrenal medulla to result in release of catecholamines, uh, your epinephrine, norepinephrine, and uh, dopamine into circulation uh, to then have those downstream effects. And it's important to note that almost every tissue in the body, every other organ, every tissue, blood vessels, they all have receptors for uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. So that just gives you an indication of just how important it is 
to have these mechanisms in place to be able to very quickly respond to any kind of physiological demand within within seconds, really. That's interesting to hear. And just obviously to cover the science on it again, Tim, the, the two points that you made at the start there I found very interesting is just that one, we know, you know, not all stress is bad. And I think generally now within the global market of just, you know, most businesses now they're trying to eliminate stress. Whereas if you want to develop, if it's from a physical standpoint or just from a mental standpoint, you need that stress um, to be placed on you. It's just that total value of stress as well. Um, and the other one you're saying there as well is that all stress matters, like all stress will have an impact on the body. I think, um, I know from my own coaching career and looking at some younger coaches now as well, they do tend to fall down that pathway of just like, oh, well, I'm just taking into account their training stress. And it's just like, well, you haven't looked at what else is going on within their life as well. Um, on that then, what is the impact we could see? So if you're talking about, you know, global stress, so not only just their, their training, you know, lifestyle stress, work stress, relationship stress, those sort of things feeding in versus, you know, the more localized sort of stress response we see from, you know, muscular stress or DOMS kicking in as well. What, what's the impact and the difference between those two as well? Looking at the impact of stress, uh, like you said, you, you really have to look at it sort of holistically. Uh, and it has to be, anytime we talk about training stress, for example, we have to look at it within the context of everything else that's going on. And, you know, sometimes, in the coaching world, this is something that might be overlooked, but we do it ourselves in our own lives, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where maybe, you know, we're following a training program or something and, and uh, trying to chase a PR or whatever, but then not paying attention to outside factors, uh, like, you know, what's my sleep looking like? What's my nutrition? Uh, and it's also important to note that positive life events can also be stressful. So, things like career accomplishment, buying a new home, a uh, new baby, these things are, are all wonderful events, but stressful. Uh, so kind of keeping those things in mind uh, goes a long way towards understanding uh, when we might need to back off in our training, when we might need to make some adjustments, even though on paper, perhaps we should be progressing a certain way. Uh, the other factor when we talk about localized stress or tissue level stress, that matters too. Uh, you know, if we are, again, using the training scenario as, as a point of reference, you know, if, if we're training hard, if we're in the middle of, let's say, a hypertrophy phase or something like that, and we're creating a lot of tissue damage, that's actual structural damage in the tissue. So uh, you need time to repair that tissue before you can, you know, train and train at your, your maximum again. So what ends up happening many times is tissue damage occurs. There's not enough recovery time. So the tissue does not fully heal and we are already imposing another stressor on that tissue. So there's, there's increased loading, there's increased tissue damage, and then the long-term effects of that, you know, eventually you will see perhaps injury, uh, connective tissue damage and things of that nature. So the tissue level uh, stress matters as well, uh, as does all of the, as do all of the other um, stressors. Um, you know, if we're looking at the whole concept of allostatic load or cumulative stress, whatever you want to call it, um, it's 
you know, I, I like to look at it as, as everything matters and, and, you know, the human body doesn't, doesn't differentiate between sources of stress, if you will, right? It, it's, it's all a physiological demand. The response physiologically is much the same. So it's up to us to modulate uh, as best we can those different sources of stress if we're trying to achieve a certain training outcome or if the goal is simply improved health and uh, ideally resilience to uh, whatever, whatever uh, you know, stressful circumstances we face. That's awesome to hear. And I mean, one of the big things that really um, stood out to me when I first saw your original talk, and it was just obviously the work you'd done as part of your, uh, I think it was your PhD research around the, the impact of stress response in uh, SEER school. So obviously for the guys going through, it's survival, evasion, resistance and escape, if I'm right in saying, yeah? Yes, that's correct. So obviously we know with stress response in that, obviously it's designed to place a large amount of stress on the guys. You know, what, what impact do we typically see then from the guys who are doing some sort of physical training? What impact is that having on that stress response there? Yeah, so physical training or, or having a higher level of, of physical training tends to be beneficial uh, in the stress response uh, specific to that study uh, when we when we took a look at military trainees, what we saw when we evaluated we 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 took a look at you know if we if we break this group into our higher fit versus our less fit uh, groups and I should caveat that by saying all of these individuals were fit. Mm -hmm. It's just that one group using military fitness uh, test scores as our as our basis were more fit than the other group. So in this particular study, both groups had similar responses to the high stress training event, but then our, our more fit group uh, returned to baseline values quicker in terms of our catecholamine response. So that's, that's key. Uh, and that's, or, or rather um, I should say catecholamine and, and um, uh, neuropeptide Y response. Uh, so what we can say is that that study demonstrated really well um, what how physical fitness can potentially impact recovery from a high stress uh, training event. Um, obviously, that has a lot of carryover to immune response. Um, you know how how well somebody is able to bounce back and potentially not run the risk of illness and things like that in, in the sort of in that recovery phase from high stress training. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the interesting things too, with fitness and being more physical fit, being more physically fit is in those individuals, you kind of have, um, it's almost like a dual benefit, right? Uh, we know, for example, that the adrenal medulla can hypertrophy with training. So with that comes the ability to have increased catecholamine storage in the storage vesicles. So you have an improved ability to secrete catecholamines under maximal exercise intensities or under a maximal uh, demand, whatever that might be physiologically. Uh, and then of course, as part of the training response, if we compare a highly trained individual to somebody who's um, you know, untrained, uh, 
at the same submaximal workload, that trained individual does not need as much of a catecholamine response to elicit the same performance level. So mm -hmm. that's that's sort of the beauty of training, right? Is that when we're when we're at a submax sort of you know not full effort, it's not that hard for us compared to being less fit. And then when we really need to tap into those uh, catecholamine stores, we have more of a reserve available to, to tap into. So both of those things combined can help us with an improved performance, um, you know, whether that be exercise or whether that be um, you know, some kind of a, other physiological demand. That's interesting. And I mean, obviously, like you say, the two population groups you had within that study, I think it was what um, infantry guys and special forces guys as well. So still, you know, very much was it uh, very high levels of fitness across both groups? Uh, high level, high level uh, trainees, not special forces, okay. but, um, you know, we had a, a good number of pilots or pilot trainees mm -hmm. in that group and uh, a few Marines, all Navy personnel. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, certainly uh, fit, um, healthy, um, fairly young age range as well. Um, so, you know, that that also is a is a factor in in the whole the whole picture of, of how they responded to that training and, and uh, also the recovery piece. Yeah, I mean, for that, that fitness level, then how, how you um... How you score in that fitness standards of like right guys who are more fit versus less fit in relation to this group is this based off of cardiovascular run times muscle endurance you know or is it just a total package you're putting in for that yeah what we took a look at was um their physical fitness test scores so those were navy physical fitness test uh there's a there's a run component and you know um typical military training push-up sit up that kind of thing yep Based mostly muscular endurance. Mm -hmm. We also administered a, a hand grip test uh, at baseline, uh, so that gave us a little bit more context for uh, what what the fitness levels were for the two groups. You know, um, hand grip strength. We can use it as an estimate of of uh, global body strength. Uh, if if you know, in in the absence of of other other measures. Um, mm -hmm love to do like a one rm or three rm squat test but given the given yeah. the location and the nature of the training that really was not possible and i was going to ask as well you mentioned there obviously those who engage in training the fitter they are you've got the hypertrophy of the uh, mandula so what 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 is the the stimulus that causes that hypertrophy is it primarily just um you know a combination of training effects or is it more like the aerobic base or the more strength base that's going to promote the hypertrophy within that yeah i would i would look at that as a, a function of the demand okay is whether it's endurance training or strength training uh you are you are placing that stimulus on the body um you're requiring higher um, higher levels of, of um, arousal, sympathetic arousal, in order to complete a given task. So there is a need for uh, catecholamine release to meet that demand. So uh, as a function of that happening, you know, repeatedly over time, uh, we can see uh, the hypertrophy in, in the adrenal medulla, similarly um, to how we might see it in, in other tissues as well. Okay, that's interesting. And obviously you're saying, you know, within the two groups, 
that stress response is similar, but it's the time afterwards to get back to baseline. So how quickly were you seeing that, that, uh, that drop back to baseline in fitter individuals compared to those who aren't? Yeah, so both groups trended uh, towards baseline values 24 hours after the highest stress uh, portion of, of uh, SEER school. Mm -hmm. That's relatively quick. Um, neither group had returned fully to baseline values, but they were close. Okay. Um, and uh, again, our, our more fit group, the values uh, were closer to baseline than in our less fit group. So, you know, it would have been interesting, you know, uh, to take a look at, okay, if we had another 48 hour time point of assessment, what might that look like? Um, what does 72 hours look like? Um, would have shed some some more light on on recovery values. And of course, you know, another thing too is is, you know, with a larger end size or repeating this, could we have potentially seen differences uh, in catecholamine response at that high stress time point? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Values were different, but not statistically significant. So yeah. it's also something that's that's interesting to look at. I mean, as well from your your original talk, um, in the, the so you're you're chatting a little bit about the concept of you know stress hardiness. So so what do you mean by stress hardiness, and you know how can you know what strategies can we typically use to enhance this? So stress hardiness, I think. Uh, Probably there's two areas that I, I would look at. Uh, I think the traditional view or context on stress hardiness is, is to look at stress hardiness as uh, we induce a stressor in a controlled environment uh, in order to you know, reduce the stress response the next time we see that same stressor. So public speaking is a great example of this mm -hmm. where you know almost everyone uh, is fearful of public speaking. So if we can introduce that in small doses over time, uh, hopefully we increase our, our hardiness to that given stressor. Uh, SEER school is another example of a, a means to develop stress hardiness, right? Um, most military training, much tactical training is based on this principle. Uh, how, can we, how can we reduce someone's uh, stress, or rather, how can we improve stress tolerance? Because we know we're going to see these stressors. We know we're going to be faced with these scenarios. How can we, um, you know, basically become more resilient to it? So one of those ways is simply to uh, induce those stressors in, in small doses to hopefully um, improve our tolerance to it overall. Uh, so it becomes less stressful the next time we see it or when we see that stressor in a real world situation. Uh, the other aspect of stress hardiness uh, that I feel is, is incredibly important is more learning to regulate um, the sympathetic nervous system or learn, learning to regulate our arousal levels. Uh, so many times under high stress circumstances, um, you know, whether it's performance or something else like a competition, uh, there tends to be over arousal, anxiety, uh, these kinds of things, which can be incredibly problematic 
Uh, one, because uh, for example, you know, if you're preparing for a competition and two hours prior, you know, you've been nothing but anxious and, and stressing out and your sympathetic nervous system is already up here in terms of uh, activation levels, you're essentially going to have, you know, a reduced ability potentially to secrete uh, catecholamines maximally when you most need them, right? Uh, sort of in competition peaking. Uh, the other aspect that we might see with, with inability to, uh, to regulate sympathetic arousal levels appropriately is um, you can start to see problems when it comes to tasks that require fine motor control. So shooting, weapons handling are, are perfect examples of this. So as part of stress hardiness and just you know overall um, responding to a given stressor, part of it is also learning how to control arousal. Um, we know that uh, we can modulate the sympathetic nervous system to some extent via the way we breathe. So, you know, different strategies for breath control, uh, other strategies are out there to train this, you know, mindfulness uh, approaches as well. Uh, but really it's about learning to sort of modulate the arousal level. So it's enough and only as much as is needed for a given task. Um, so that's tremendously important. Um, and and when, when we can't do that, when we have over arousal uh, chronically, you know, that can lead to some, some pretty significant performance decrements, um, but also could potentially have some health concerns as well. Because uh, again, you know, uh, the whole idea with, with arousal and um, sort of, uh, our stress responses is not, in, not intended to be a permanent state. It's intended to be a, a temporary uh, increase in, in, in our arousal levels so that we can perform. But then ideally, you know, we, we go back to a parasympathetic state, everything's nice and in balance and we can rest and recover. Uh, so when that's not happening, when it's just arousal and sympathetic state over and over and over again, um, the health outcomes are, are significant. And then, you know, on, on the other side, uh, this is where we can also see disturbance with some other things. So, you know, there's things looking at gut health, um, that whole aspect of it, which is all, uh, you know, our digestion, gut health relies heavily on parasympathetic, uh, our parasympathetic state and the ability to be in a, a recovery state. So, you know, if we are chronically you know, sympathetic all the time, day in and day out, um, we're eventually going to see that in other aspects as well, not just, you know, physical performance, not just training performance, not just uh, tactical performance, but, but overall health uh, pretty significantly. Oh, that's interesting. So I never even considered as well as just the, the impact of the sympathetic nervous system on gut health as well. Um, it's interesting, like coming from a coaching background, the amount of guys I've seen who have just, you know, tanked after a heavy training block as well because they've spent so much time at that that higher end of the sympathetic system of just like going in, getting worked up for lifting and obviously 80, 85% plus every session, you know, and there's never been any sort of like lower volume stuff. So I've coached runners who loved it, that lower volume, like zone one, zone two sort of stuff where it's 
physiologically it's challenging but nervous system wise it's not that challenging on them mm. whereas the, the lifter guys just you know will completely completely uh put themselves in in the ground you know just because they're constantly redlining as well that, that's interesting to hear yeah and then i think you bring up a good point is that it's it's difficult for many athletes to to learn you know that you don't always have to redline in your yeah. training and that it's actually counterproductive uh, and you know that's very common in, in the tactical tactical world too uh, you know some of it's personality driven certainly um, but uh, it, it takes a lot of <laughs> coaching effort to, to sort of teach and instill that that recovery is just as important and and um, you know the lower volume uh, emphasis matters and then also um, you know what are ways that that we can, sort of help athletes when they are doing those high high CNS demand type training sessions, what are recovery strategies, breathing strategies to try to bring things back to that parasympathetic state a little bit sooner. Um, and, you know, those are the things that I feel many times we forget about, or if there's something that's going to be cut from a program and, in, in, you know, in the interest of time, that's the first thing. Yeah. You know? uh, so, yeah. Lots, lots to be said on that one, I feel. Definitely, definitely. Now, one thing I was going to ask you, Tim, as well, is just like, not only in sport, but in, the, you know, the tactical realm as well, you know, is there, it's always going to be a stressful environment, especially in tactical, but like, is there any difference we typically see in stress response between, you know, male and female personnel at all there, you know, just based off of like hormone profile or, you know, strength, strength scores, muscle mass, these sort of things? Yeah, so what what we've seen uh, from from the study in in SEER school specifically, uh, similar responses uh, between men and women. We had a, a small number of women uh, participate in that training. Uh, so in terms of uh, cortisol, in terms of catecholamine response, very similar. Uh, and other research has has looked at catecholamine response to um, to different types of uh, you know, uh, physical uh, performances, and by and large, the responses between men and women are similar. Um, obviously, there are some differences physiologically between men and women. Uh, these are more in terms of, for example, um, you know, upper body strength. That's probably the one that that is referenced the the most. Mm -hmm. You know, and do have, uh, I would say, about um, thirty percent uh, greater. Uh, upper body muscle strength and obviously uh, greater lean lean body mass typically than than women whereas in women we'll see uh, most of the time we'll see increased trunk and core strength as compared to men so those differences are there uh, but in terms of of the ability to you know um, secrete catecholamines respond to a stressor uh, the the way the signaling pathways uh, work very very much the same uh, in men and women you know obviously um, the one difference hormonally that that is a driver of changes or rather differences in, in lean muscle mass would be testosterone uh, which is higher in men uh, obviously uh, because in men you know we have um, we have gonadal uh, uh, testosterone sources, whereas in women we don't have that. 
So women do have some testosterone uh, uh, via adrenal uh, sources. So it shares the same synthesis pathway with cortisol. So we do see some conversion and uh, some testosterone values in women, uh, but in women, it's not, not thought to be uh, the primary driver for, for muscle mass. Um, there is perhaps a greater role of, of uh, growth hormone um, in women as compared to men. Um, so there are hormonal differences to be sure, uh, but going back to the stress response, and what we see there, uh, we will see similar, uh, simil similar cortisol values uh, in response to stress and similar similarities in terms of catecholamine uh, release also. Uh, so I would say if we're talking about the stress response specifically, there are more similarities than there are differences. Okay, that's interesting. And it's something that I thought there would be more of a profound difference. And I know there's more and more research now taking place with regards to, you know, female athletes and female personnel as well of just, you know, that hormone balance throughout the month, especially with regards to testosterone spikes around the menstrual cycle and trying to pinpoint those accurate times to start loading in more heavy stressful training at those points to get those adaptations as well. So. Yeah, that, that's an interesting topic. And I would say that this is an area where um, perhaps more work needs to be done because, mm -hmm. um, you know, there has been research to show um, that performance does vary around the menstrual cycle. Other research has, has said the opposite. Some research is inconclusive. So we don't really know. Um, but what we can say is, regardless of the hormonal differences that, that occur around the the cycle, women are able to perform. Uh, so, you know, um, I don't want to say that that the menstrual cycle doesn't matter. It absolutely does. Uh, but perhaps it's a factor, um, you know, looking more at, at um, a, a woman's ability to tolerate a given stressor, right? We get certain parts of the menstrual cycle as, as, you know, periods of it where perhaps that is in and of itself a stressor, right? To go through uh, those hormonal fluctuations every month. So um, I don't know, I think that's, that's an interesting uh, thing to look at. Definitely not, not a lot of work, I feel um, not enough in this area to truly be able to definitively say, you know, this is what's going on. And, and these are the parts of the menstrual cycle where we should, you know, focus our efforts in terms of loading or volume or, or what have you. That's interesting. And I mean, it, it was one of my questions I was going to ask as well, like you've touched on a little bit there, Tinda, it's just like with regards to the research, obviously there's one aspect there looking at like the, the, the impact on like the, the female athlete, the female personnel, overall for the research side of things around you know stress response within the military and like that stress inoculation or stress hardness where do you see research starting to go next with this and you know how's that going to spread out over the next five years or so i i think you know we we have a a, a good understanding of what happens with acute stress uh we have we have uh research that has shown uh you know the stress that's that's involved with military training courses uh, acutely. Uh, so the next step I feel would be to take a look at what is happening uh, longitudinally. So 
what I mean by that is if we take a, a military trainee uh, who is going through a course, high stress training course, such as SEER school or anything else, uh, we can't look at that in isolation. Mm -hmm. We can't make the assumption that that individual is, is coming into that training course well rested. You know, they've had eight weeks to prep for this. This is, you know, they had a training cycle leading up to this, and then this is their culminating event. And then they're going to go home and get a chance to recover. That's not realistic. Uh, in many cases, what's happening is, you know, um, the week before they come to SEER school or right after, they're going to airborne school or they're going to some other follow-on training course where, again, there's a physical, psychological uh, demand, more stressors are being placed on that individual, and the recovery is not necessarily happening. So it would be uh, important to take a look at what is happening with an individual over the course of a career where there are these repeated exposures to stressors combined with deployment stressors and of course life stressors and things of that nature. But uh, you know, what do the hormonal values look like for that individual over the long term? And you know, more importantly, we can look at the hormones and that tells us one thing, but but can we say, can we make any connections perhaps between all of this cumulative stress and you know uh, injury down the line or or health status down the line? So that's where more work would be needed to, to really understand um, sort of that cumulative stress scenario specific to a military context. Uh, we can say the same about, you know, looking more at an athletic context. Um, I think perhaps we have a bit more work in this area if we're looking at athletes and uh, athlete tracking over multiple seasons and things like that. Uh, with military personnel or even um, tactical personnel, that presents a bit more of a challenge with some restrictions uh, and, and sometimes access to populations. But uh, certainly, I, I think much, much more work is needed there to, to shed some light on, uh, on you know, cumulative stress uh, specifically within, um, within, a, within a population that is... Um, routinely experiencing those those situations. Definitely, definitely. And that's an interesting point you bring up there about the longitudinal side of things as well with regards to, you know, balancing that from the, the, the biology and the science side of things and be like, right, okay, they've gone through a huge stress of SEER school, they've had a week and then suddenly they're in airborne school as well. Now, obviously, you know, for leadership and departments and that, obviously want guys going through that pipeline quite quickly and upskilled then obviously looking at it and being like, right, okay, what state is that person in going into, um, you know, something like airborne school and what's that chance of injury suddenly skyrocketed or not? So that would be an interesting one to look into. Yeah, absolutely. And I would, I would also add to that perhaps that, you know, um, many times within the military, you know, this is, some of the approaches are, um, well, is, is this training stressful enough, right? Because obviously we want the training to be stressful in order to get that stress tolerance and build the stress hardiness. Like we, we need it to be stressful, but at the same time, you know, we, we also need to, to learn when to back off and learn to how we, we talked about with the athlete, you know, you can't redline it all the time, right? 
So same thing with, with military training. Uh, there has to be a, a better understanding of the importance of recovery as part of that training model. Um, and that's perhaps where, where uh, some, some, uh, some work might be needed as well. Definitely, definitely. That's awesome to hear. Now, obviously, Tim, like everyone I have on, on the show, I'm always interested in what they're doing for their own development. Um, so I always have the same question for everyone, and that is just, do you recommend a, a book, an app, or a website you personally found useful for your own you know, development or your own education? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the books that I'm uh, reading now is Breath uh, by James Nestor. Uh, really great book. Uh, that talks about the importance of breathing, mm -hmm. uh, but more specifically putting it within the context of sympathetic and parasympathetic state and, and uh, kind of picking through some of the physiological uh, changes that happen. Uh, and, and many of them are simply linked to the way that we breathe uh, day to day. Uh, so fascinating read uh, for anyone that, that uh, wants to have an understanding of, of, of physiology from a sympathetic parasympathetic point of view a little bit more really enjoying that one right now and then uh one of the other ones uh that i like uh this one's this one's a bit of a a, a bit of a, a a read for sure super training um a classic yeah. uh but uh for a really solid read on all things periodization and programming um that that would be uh, one of the ones that i recommend uh you know probably need a bit more time to digest that one it's 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 a solid <laughs> yeah, definitely, solid, definitely. Uh, solid volume there yeah. um yeah th those two um are definitely on my list it's it's been a while i, I haven't read breath but like I haven't read bits of super training yeah it's it's definitely not a quick page turner you need some no. time to sit there and consolidate <laughs> take it all in go away think come back to the same page and go on exactly definitely yeah. definitely Listen, Tinder, it's been awesome getting to chat to you, you know, really delving into the science on this as well. For anyone who's listening in, you know, who you know, may have some follow-up questions or just wants to reach out and find out a bit more, what's the best way people can do that? Yeah, so uh, I, I am on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me there. And then through my, my uh, professional email through Merrimack, uh, it's my last name, Sivak, and then first initial T. Uh, at merrimack.edu. Those are the, the easiest ways to reach me. Um, and, you know, always happy to chat about uh, stress. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, so, you know, hopefully can can be a resource for, for anyone with questions. That's awesome. That's awesome. And like I say, I'll throw um, those links and your two book recommendations into our show notes, just so anyone can reach out. Um, obviously, once again, it's been great getting to sit down and chat to you. I know you've got a busy schedule finishing up semester at the moment. So thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John, for having me. Uh, it was my pleasure. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to be here today and uh, chat with you a bit this morning. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. To continue supporting us, can I ask you to do me a simple favor? First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, 
if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.